And welcome, friends, to the Generations Broadcast. Kevin Swanson, your host with you, Adam McManus, our host on theworldview.com, also with me on this edition. Big things happening around the world. God is always at work. Yes, indeed. And Adam, wow, lots and lots of concern about the instability internationally among the geopolitical forces of this world. We talked about the doomsday clock, I'm going to say 10 months ago. They had cut it to 90 seconds. Now, this this is a group of scientists that are concerned with the instability among the geopolitical forces of the world. And it was 17 minutes to midnight under George H.W. Bush, down to seven minutes under George W., five minutes for Barack Obama, three minutes when Donald Trump was inaugurated. And now in the year 2023, it stands at 90 seconds until doomsday, till midnight. And just the the world is sensing an instability. There's a sense that, well, judgment may be imminent. I'm not not so well, the way they put it. <laughs> you know, you're not seeing that on you know Time Magazine and FoxNews.com. Judgments are coming, but I think they have a strong sense of it. This is something of a psychological sense that uh, human guilt is uh, is palpable, and it's effectively realizing the imminence of God's judgment or a heavy judgment coming down upon the world. I'll just give you a few headlines. I, I just Googled this just now. And uh, is World War III on the horizon? That was theweek.com. Uh, is World War III possible? The next few weeks will tell. That's northeastern.edu. Here's Washington Post. Perspective. How will we know when it's World War III? Here's another one. This is how World War III begins. That's New York Times. And uh, moving on down, are we headed for World War III? That's the Wall Street Journal. So on it goes. I mean, I don't remember reading headlines like this three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 25 years ago. I, no. There's something happening here. In fact, you monitored an interview that was done with a, an admiral, as I recall. What was the essence of, of that interview, Adam? There was a conversation with former British Navy Chief Admiral Lord West, and he described six terrifying steps as we spiral into World War III that it would take for that doomsday clock to hit 12 midnight. First, he fears that Israel will overreact as they seek to exact revenge as the full force of Israel's military has been preparing now for a full-scale ground invasion ever since the most recent October 7th surprise attack on Israel by Hamas, the political terrorist organization. Second, Admiral West says the Arab world will recoil in horror and cause a backlash, causing the war to spread to Lebanon as the Iran-backed Hezbollah has a strong military and political grip on Lebanon. Interestingly, Jerusalem he says, has long seen the Lebanon-based terror group as a bigger threat than Hamas with their more advanced weaponry, including precision missiles and drones. Third, he said if Lebanon is in shambles, Russian-backed Syria would join in the fight, and that would trigger Russia to get involved. Yep. It's this domino effect. Fourth, since Iran is a key backer of both the Palestine terror group Hamas and the Lebanon-based Hezbollah, it would be drawn into the conflict. And of course, we know well 
Iran has always seeked to eradicate Israel from the face of the map. Fifth, the United States and the United Kingdom might enter the fight. Both countries have already sent military and naval forces to support Israel in their fight against Hamas and to reinforce regional stability. Sixth and finally, Saudi Arabia would be forced into the battle. For years now, Iran has supported Yemen's Houthi rebels who are at war with their large Islamic neighbor of Saudi Arabia. The volatile and gun-toting Houthis, says Admiral West, have been provoking Saudi Arabia by shooting Iranian-supplied missiles into its territory. So that is his prediction for what will happen if the first domino falls that we might be looking toward World War III. And that was just a recent interview that occurred on the weekend with the U.S. Sun, as I recall. Well, I, you know, my big takeaway here is the level of vulnerability at which the nations sit. And in other words, you know, I, I guess a lot of people thought, well, you know, at least we got world government. The U.N. has come together. They're amazing. They can hold the whole world together and keep everybody at peace. And, you know, just... Wow, the the capabilities of man without God to rule the world and to maintain world peace is just, you know, unlimited. Uh, not. Mm. Can I say not? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. What we're seeing is increased levels of instability and vulnerability, all in the hand of God, of course. Keep in mind, Job 12, 23, he makes the nations great. And then destroys them. He enlarges the nations and then leads them away. Psalm 46 as well. Come behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the world. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Keep in mind, God is sovereign over all and I want to develop on this a little bit more in just a moment. World War III, what starts these wars? And what do Christians think about these sorts of things? And how do we react? That next on Generations. Stay with me. Hello, my friends. For the last 15 years, the Generations team has produced a Christian curriculum specifically for families who want to give their children a God-centered, Bible-saturated, biblical worldview-based education. Our commitment is to restore the Christian faith, generational faith in an age where we are losing faith in this country and almost anywhere around the world where Christian children attend secular schools or use secular curriculum and imbibe secular culture. Now, we're not relying on the pre-Christian Greeks for an educational model here. We're not relying on the post-Christian secularists for the education model either. Our curriculum is based in a biblical worldview. We put hundreds of Bible verses in the history books and integrate the truths into the subjects. We want to glorify God on every page of the science books. We immediately integrate knowledge into life application and natural revelation with special revelation. We keep Christ at the very center of the history books with preparing the world for Jesus and taking the world for Jesus. I believe God is calling this generation in this highly secularized age to a radical change in how they disciple their children. Please check out our program for education of your children and grandchildren at www.generations.org.
and back on Generations. Kevin Swanson with Adam McManus. And here we go again. Wars and rumors of wars happening one more time in the history of the world. It's interesting, the Uppsala University Conflict Data Program, that's Uppsala, Sweden, they've been working on this thing for years. But the most recent report on worldwide conflicts finds 240,000 people killed in wars in 2022. That was the the most for any year since 1993-4-ish, the Iraqi war. And this is the organization that uh, records wars. They've got 55 wars in 2022, the highest number of wars on record since World War II or before World War II. So what is that? 75, 80 years and 80 years. We're seeing way more wars than any other time. Well, since, uh, since roughly my, my parents were born. So we're looking at a period of time of increased conflict worldwide. So what does that tell you? It does seem like we're cruising for a bruising that the world is heading towards war. This isn't peace. This is, this is more war. war. War is on the increase worldwide. And we see that from the Uppsala data. And by the way, this, uh, this Lord West, Admiral Lord West, isn't the only one that's concerned. As I read all the headlines coming through the major news sources right now, David Petraeus was also recently interviewed by CNN. And that was the general who led the forces in the Iraqi war, as I recall. And he, 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 he had some comments on this, too. He did. General David Petraeus has quite a history. He served in the Army for 37 years before he became the director of the CIA between September 2011 and November 2012. He was involved in Afghanistan, in the command there, in Iraq, dating back to 2003, in, in much of the various wars in Iraq, the Anbar campaign, the Battle of Karbala, the Battle of Mosul, Operation Phantom Thunder, Operation Phantom Strike, Operation Phantom Phoenix, the Nineveh campaign of 2008, and the 2008 Al-Qaeda offensive in, in Iraq, as well as the Battle of Wanat in Afghanistan. So he and an eminent historian of war, Lord Andrew Roberts, a different lord, They've got a lot of lords in England, (laughs) but this Lord Andrew Roberts and General David Petraeus teamed up to write a new book recently released in the last couple of weeks. It's called Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. And they were interviewed by Peter Bergen, CNN's national security analyst, about what they can bring to the table in terms of an analysis of what's happening with Israel and Hamas. Two very well-qualified people to speak to it, and they gave a sobering assessment of the challenge facing the Israeli military in trying to eliminate Hamas after the October 7th terrorist attack on southern Israel, which killed more than 1,400 people. Petraeus said Israel's big idea right now is to destroy Hamas, which means rendering the enemy incapable of accomplishing its mission without reconstitution. What that means, practically speaking, is it's not just a lot of airstrikes. It means you have to go in on the ground, clear every building, every floor, every room, every basement, every tunnel. Apparently, there's a very extensive tunnel system in Gaza against terrorists who know the place better than the back of their hands. 
Plus, these terrorists, as you know, Muslim as they are, have shown a willingness to blow themselves up to take Israeli soldiers with them. Betrayus said he and his co-author cannot imagine a more challenging context for a military commander and soldiers than this one. And that's saying a lot as he's surveyed the evolution of warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. Beyond that, Hamas would do something particularly egregious in the past. Israel would make a limited incursion, lots of air power, drone strikes, etc. And Hamas would lay low. Israel would enjoy a few years of relative peace, but then they would ramp up again. Bergen said the other obstacles that the Israelis will likely encounter in Gaza are hostages, human shields, suicide bombers, improvised explosive devices, booby traps, snipers, and fighters not in uniform. I mean, this is untraditional warfare, as it were. Peter Bergen of CNN asked Petraeus, how long did it take the Iraqi military, assisted by American advisors and U.S. air power, to remove ISIS from Mosul, Iraq? He said it took nine months. Longer if you just take the period of planning, the positioning of forces, the settling of conditions for the attack, with considerable American support as they advised, assisted, and enabled. What was, I think, revealing is that Petraeus said Mosul's population was not two million at the time. Hundreds of thousands of civilians had left. It was certainly roughly the same size of Gaza, but not with the same number of high-rises that you find in Gaza. Peter Bergen, the CNN national security analyst, said, in your book, you said to secure any kind of area, as a rule of thumb, you need one security person per 50 inhabitants. There are some 2 million inhabitants in Gaza, which would suggest you need around 40,000 security personnel to secure Gaza after you win the military conflict. Is that a fair number? Petraeus said, well, you've raised a good point. Whatever interim international authority might be established in Gaza will not just have to distribute humanitarian assistance, restore basic services, repair damaged infrastructure, reopen markets, schools, clinics, hospitals, restore all the social services that Hamas's political wing has overseen, but they will now have to conduct a counterinsurgency operation with a hard edge with very good intelligence capabilities. It may not be 40,000 security personnel, but it will have to be definitely a substantial force. This is a guy, let's not forget, General Petraeus uh, was a two-star general back in 2003 during the early days of the fight to Baghdad, the invasion of Iraq. The American troops took the city of Najaf, Iraq, N-A-J-A-F, a city of about 500,000 people, considered the holiest city in Shia Islam. After several days of fighting, the enemy collapsed and melted away. He said, we took control of the city. I got on the radio. I called my boss and I said, hey, boss, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is that we now own Najaf, Iraq. And he asked, well, what's the bad news? And he replied, Petraeus did, we own Najaf. What do you want us to do with it? He envisions the same kind of conversation that either Israel will have internally or an international force will have with itself about owning Gaza City, it's, it's both good news and bad news. What do you want us to do with it? So lots of precautions here. Well, the point of this article is that uh, General Petraeus said that this would be the most challenging war for the military since World War II. 
And, uh, you know, he's got the experience to, to make that call, given that he's been involved in some very difficult conflicts in the Middle East. Now, I want to deal with the question of why do wars start to begin with? And the Bible gives us the clear answer. You lust, you covet, you desire, and you have not. It's mostly economic and, of course, territorial. It has to do with power, money, power, territory. That's the impetus for war. And you think about the first shots in the Civil War fired at Sumter. Why, why did that happen? What was happening in Sumter? Well, uh, Sumter was uh, an island in Charleston Harbor in South Carolina. That was where the tariff collection point for goods coming to the United States was happening. Something that had been a sore spot for the state of South Carolina since the nullification crisis of 1832. This was an attempt to ignore the federal tariffs advocated strongly by Andrew Jackson's Vice President John C. Calhoun. Andrew Jackson forced the issue, and Calhoun resigned his position as Vice President. After the Compromise of 1850, which Calhoun opposed in the interest of the South, he helped to organize the Nashville Convention to discuss the possibility of secession. Well, the convention met in June of 1850. It was attended by 176 delegates from nine states. Well, the tariffs remained a major issue well into the 1860 election cycle. That, of course, was the time that President Abraham Lincoln was elected as President of the United States. In his first inaugural address, President Abraham Lincoln pointedly remarked that the power confided to me will be used to hold, occupy, and possess the property and places belonging to the government and to collect the duties and imposts, referring to Fort Sumter. So that included the Charleston port, and Abraham Lincoln then sent reinforcements to the fort to collect those tariffs, and that became the pretext for the first Confederate shots fired up on Fort Sumter on April 12th, 1861. All that to say, it was tied into the tariffs, tied into economics, which is why World War III begins. It's territory, it's tariffs, it's all of that. Money talks. I think people need to understand this. When you stress a country economically, you push them over the brink to war. So I guess my question that I'm going to grapple with for the rest of this broadcast is, are we on the brink of World War III? Is that possible? Now, there's some, perhaps some religious differences as well that contribute to the rise of world wars. And we certainly see something of a religious difference in the Middle East between the Jews and the Muslims. So we see that. And that's always been something of a sore spot in the Middle East, all the way back to the Crusades. But I think money is the number one issue. There are economic elements that put the squeeze on nations. The primary economic concern right now is actually American debt. The devaluation of the dollar and bonds held by foreign governments, that's going to be tough. Foreign nations don't really want the debt they hold to reduce to nothing. They, they, they want to use American holdings as collateral, and that's going to be something of a tension for the future. China holds a trillion dollars of our debt. We hold almost nothing of China's debt. And as the Bible says, the debtor is servant to the lender. Now, of course, that doesn't make much sense, and most people aren't going to take that as truth. Uh, God's wisdom is pretty much useless to the modern mind. But if you go back to the book of Proverbs, you have to say, well, um, I believe God. At least Christians should say, we believe God, we accept God's wisdom. And if the debtor is servant to the lender, then we, as a nation, are a servant to China. And if we don't obey China, if, if we become an economic lag on China because of our debt and devaluation of the dollar, then we're going to be in a ton of trouble in the, in the years that come. Uh, we were tightening the screws pretty good after Japan got into the imperialistic mode over in China. And so in 1938, the U.S. State Department advised banks and 
Holman abroad not to extend credit to Japanese businesses. In 1939, the United States terminated the 1911 commercial treaty between the United States and Japan. This led to an American embargo, initially of airplanes, parts, machine parts, and aviation gasoline. The embargo was expanded in 1940 to include oil, iron, steel scrap, and other commodities. And so that was the pretext to, again, Pearl Harbor. Japanese leaders weren't very happy about all this embargo business, and uh, so they were facing economic ruin. But for the West to lift the embargo, Japan had to retreat from China and abandon its expansionistic policy. So once again, you have territory on the one side, you have economics on the other. These are the sorts of things that lead to world wars. World War II also starts up out of German pride, German desperation, German racism. And German economic stresses caused by the U.S. calling in loans on the German World War I reconstruction. That was a huge economic component there. Secular history involves a bunch of wars. I mean, this is the bottom line. The fact, the fact that we are facing so many wars, what, 55 wars in uh, 2023 is an indication that uh, we're just continuing on with the, what has happened throughout world history. In fact, I've just completed reading some 1,000 pages of world history and from a secular perspective and secular history is about 95 to 98% about wars, assassinations, power grabs, empires, technology used to uh, aid in even more war. And then there's more war and then there's more wars. And then after that, there are more wars after which there are more wars it's actually rather boring, Adam, to read, to read world history, to be honest with you. Coming out of, uh, you know, a thousand pages of this, it's kind of overwhelming. But uh, the wars of the nations are God's judgments upon the nations, where they kill off each other, cut off each other's legs, which prevents any one power from becoming too powerful. So that's the history of the world. I think people need to understand. That. Also, to, to realize that wars are God's judgment on a disobedient and proud people. German, Germany was proud, extremely proud, so God crushed the nation, World War II. Germany was also the seedbed of homosexuality in the 1920s that brought God's judgment on the world in the 1940s. It takes about 20 years for God to bring his judgment down upon a nation of that sort. And since the 1960s, what has happened here in the United States? What's happened in the West? And uh, friends, I think it's important for us to know what has happened, something similar to what happened to Germany prior to the 1940s. Erwin Lutz and others have referred to the same sorts of pattern happening here in the United States and Western Europe as it was in Germany in the 1920s and 1930s. The U.S. government banned giving any glory to God, praying to God, worshiping God in the classrooms in 1964, 1966. Only the worship of man and the pride of man was allowed in American public schools. Then there was gay pride, homosexual pride dominating the world for about, well, now 20 years. The U.S. Supreme Court approved of homosexuality in 2003. Lawrence v. Texas was 2003, exactly 20 years ago. Obergefell was about 10 years ago. The University of Chicago's National Opinion Research Center also released a cross-national survey to find who had the greatest degree of pride in their nations. Guess who was number one? Yes, United States was the proudest nation in the world. Venezuela was number two. After that came Australia, Austria, uh, South Africa, Canada, Chile, New Zealand, and Israel. Then I did one more search on the proudest gay country in the world. That is the, the proudest country on the gay pride ratio. Turns out, again, the proudest nations, the gay proudest nations in the world are 
Number one, the United States. Number two, Spain. Number three is Germany. And number four is Brazil. So here we go again. The basis of pride. Mm-hmm. On that basis, uh, the nation's most likely to fall in a World War III would be the United States, Venezuela, Australia, uh, South Africa, Spain, Germany, Canada, and Israel. So I guess the question is, is World War III around the corner? And that's the question that has been posed by some of the leading newspapers, some of the leading military officials, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I guess that's the question for us. Yeah, I'd like to put another quote out there from this fascinating conversation that the CNN national security analyst Peter Bergen had with General David Petraeus and Lord Andrew Roberts about their book, Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. He put into perspective what happened on October 7th compared to 9-11. He said, you had a barbaric, horrific, unspeakable set of actions that killed some 1,400 Israelis. But to put that into perspective from a U.S. point of view, That would be the equivalent of more than 50,000 Americans having been killed on 9-11 instead of 3,000. And when Hamas took 200 Israeli hostages, that would be the equivalent for us to have witnessed on 9-11 the taking of 6,000 Americans hostage on that day, September 11, 2001. Boy, all of a sudden, as much as we were outraged on 9-11 by what the Muslims did in terms of attacking us and trying to take out our financial center and our legislative center and the Pentagon. Imagine if the numbers instead of 3,000 were 50,000, instead of zero hostages, 6,000 Americans Mm -hmm. held hostage. That is very instructive. Yeah, it is. It is. And I want to end on that point. Let me develop on that point just for a moment. How will this next war, how will World War III be different from all previous wars, at least in the recent past? And I think several things. The first is the point that you just made. The Muslims will be involved in these massive wars. The first time they've come back since since the West beat them back on the island of Malta in 1565. You remember they were on a roll. From, I'm going to say, roughly the 1200s, 1300s, taking Constantinople in roughly 1400, and then on into Europe. 1565, they were back down on the island of Malta, and, and they have never came back until the 20th century. Protestant Reformation put a hitch in the get-up for the Muslims for about 450 years, but they are back. They have increased their uh, take over the worldwide population from 12% to 25% in the last 100 years. So they're on a roll. Uh, they have an overall GDP right now of $8 trillion. That's the uh, some 40, 50 Muslim nations around the world. Overall GDP of $8 trillion. Add to that China's $17 trillion and Russia's GDP of $2 trillion, You get $27 trillion. So the axis of powers right now stands at 27% of the world GDP. Now here's the kicker. Those nations made up only 8% of the world GDP in 1980. And this is a major point I've made in Epoch, the Rise and Fall of the West. So get a copy of Epoch, the Rise and Fall of the West to better understand the times that we live in right now. The East is on the rise. The West is collapsing. Just deal with it. Uh, Bottom line is the axis of powers was about 8% of the world GDP in 1980. Now 27% of the world GDP in the year 2023. 
Terrorism also will play a much bigger role in the next war, and we've already seen that. Between 1975 and 2005, there was an average of 2,500 terrorist incidents in a, a, a year. So on average, 2,500 per year. That jacked up in 2005 to an average of 8,500 terrorist events per year. So you've gone from 2,500 terrorist events on average per year between 1975 and 2005 to an average of 8,500 terrorist events a year in the last 15 years. So the world has become much more anarchical. And war unites more anarchy and terrorism to the confusion. It incites more of the violent and worst anarchical elements into the war, and we see that over and over again. So expect more Muslims, expect more terrorism, and then thirdly, nukes and biological warfare. Uh, no sense in going into that. We've mentioned that a few other times on the program. I think this will be devastating for Western nations. I, I, I don't think we're coming back as hard and as fast as we did in the first two world wars. A uh, couple of problems. We have a feminized military. We have a homosexualized military. We have a transgendered military. We have an obese military. New numbers came out this week indicating the military obesity rate doubled in 10 years. And uh, here is the headline. Nearly 70% of active service members are overweight. Okay. These are just indications of the breakdown of the character, the breakdown of the faith, the breakdown of the economy, the breakdown of the social uh, system under which the Western world sits. Wow. And also the lines are increasingly drawn now between traditionalist countries that still have some sense of social order and homosexualized countries. So you, you have on the Eastern side, some protection, some respect for family, for, for sexuality, at least at some point, but in the West it's, it's, it's completely chaotic and, what we see is a breakdown of sexuality and the entire social order has already collapsed in the Western world. So the lines are increasingly drawn between East and West. Ironically, Israel is right in the middle between the East and the West. That's what makes this, I think, so symbolic. Israel has always been right there in the center of the world. Everything East of Israel is typically referred to as the East. Everything West of Israel is typically referred to as the West. So we wow. have this pretty significant line drawn and Israel is sitting there strategically right in the center. I've never heard the that lines before. are drawn between post-Christian countries in Europe and America and the non-Christianized countries. So you, that these are the lines, the mm -hmm. lines are drawn between the traditionals and the pro-homosexual. The lines are drawn between the post-Christian countries and the non-Christian countries. So where are the Christians? Well, the remnant, that is us, are still working hard to disciple the nations everywhere we go in every nation around the world. So stay on target, stay on your job, do what you're supposed to do. God brings these worldwide shakeups for a reason, friends. Jesus is over all things to the church. Keep that in mind. God is sovereign. God has an agenda working here. The church will continue and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the greatest benefit to Christianity, remember, occurred with the fall of Rome in 476, the Islamic crushing of Constantinople in roughly 1450, and the bubonic plague, which happened at the same time, making way for the greatest reformation in the history of Christianity and the opening up of a Protestant mission work that uh, reached 900 million people. So uh, we're looking forward to a massive shakeup in the world, which absolutely will provide for a massive benefit to the Christian church should Christ tarry. Whatever happens in the future, 
make sure, make sure that you know that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He sits on the right hand of the Father, brings his enemies under his footstool, and he is over all things to the church. Read the full story in Epoch, The Rise and Fall of the West, now available at generations.org. Get a copy today at generations.org. This is Kevin Swanson inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation.